Welcome to the Contending for the Word podcast, a podcast devoted to helping inform, educate, equip, and warn people about false teachers, false movements, and unbiblical philosophies. Now join our host for today's episode and enjoy. Well, welcome back to the Contending for the Word podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about something that is happening in the broader body of Christ today, and uh, specifically about one man, and that man is Andy Stanley. Let's, let's talk first about who Andy Stanley is. In case you don't know who he is, he is the founder and the senior pastor of North Point Ministries, a non-denominational evangelical church with several campuses across the North Metro Atlanta area. Um, he is uh, considered one of the most influential pastors in the United States, and he has a very wide reach through his sermons and podcasts and all, all the various things that um, he is he's doing. So recently, Andy held a conference at his church. The conference was the Unconditional Conference. Um, he spoke there to his congregation. Um, this message was not live-streamed. The message was not live-streamed like usual. He says on that recording that he's never made it a habit um, of anything that uh, he hasn't said there first, meaning his church. So he feels that he needs to respond to the criticism, um, but he wants to explain why he uh, has uh, is doing the not doing the live stream for that particular message. And then he, we're going to talk about Albert Moeller here in just a minute. But Albert Moeller is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Stan Moeller wrote uh, an article in World Magazine. Um, about Andy Stanley that we're going to talk about in a minute. But Stanley, uh, in this message, he talks about Albert Muller, and he says his version, referring to Muller, this version of biblical Christianity is why people are leaving Christianity unnecessarily. It's the version that causes people to resist the Christian faith because they can't find Jesus in the midst of all the other stuff and all the other theology and all the other complexity that gets gobbed onto the message. And then he moves on, Stanley does, to explain North Point's history of responding to what Stanley says are either gay kids or same attracted kids. He offers a language disclaimer in which uh, he says that when a Christian student comes out as LGBTQ identified, they have rarely engaged in any same-sex sort of behavior, which he calls an important distinction. This realization, Stanley says, that they are even drawn in the direction of the same-sex attraction is terrifying to a middle school and is terrifying to a high school student. They don't embrace it, they resist it. And they find themselves in a battle, not against a behavior, they find themselves in a battle against a defining attraction that they did not choose but somehow has chosen them. And he continues on, and he draws a distinction between homosexuality as a behavior and what he describes as an immutable characteristic in this message, in which he says, they pray, they beg God to take it away. They are literally afraid they are going to hell, not because of anything they've done, but because of who they are. Stanley also defended his decision to invite two openly gay men, Justin Lee and Brian Nitzel, to speak at the Unconditional Conference. Now, we need to understand that both of these men are in same-sex marriages. And this is a church, this is a church event that is happening here. And Stanley acknowledges in this recording that at the center of all the controversy prior to the conference, both Lee and Nitzel have been previously invited to speak at North Point's quarterly meeting of Parent Connect, a ministry for parents of LGBTQ-identified uh, children. And Stanley says this, We have already heard that they were going to say. We already knew how effective they were at connecting with parents of gay kids in particular. And Stanley continues saying, here's the thing about Brian and Justin, their stories and their journey of growing up in the church and maintaining their faith in Christ and their commitment to following Christ all through their high school and college. 
and singles all the way up to the time they were married. Their story is so powerful for parents of gays, especially kids, that it's a story gay parents and gay kids need to hear. Now, then he goes on and says that he believes in the New Testament sexual ethic, which we're going to talk about on today's show. He says that sex is for married people, Stanley does. And so when we talk about, we teach about, Stanley says, about marriage, the same way that Jesus and the apostles did, every instruction in the Bible regarding marriage references or even assumes a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And so biblical marriage, he says, is between a man and a woman. We've never shied away from that. Now, uh, Denny Burke is the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and he's a professor of biblical studies at Boyce College and Southern Seminary. He describes Stanley's message of subversively anti-Christian. He says that it's an anti-Christian message because it tells sinners that they don't need to repent of their sin in order to be Christian. That's what he told the Christian Post via email Monday. It's subversive because the message is cloaked in a veneer of Christianese. It's designed to persuade the consciences of Christians of a message that is incompatible with basic Christian teaching. In fact, Burke added Stanley's message, which he listened to, was a direct contradiction of texts like Ephesians 5, 5 through 6, which says, For you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an adulterer has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, let's let's uh, talk about um, this message, this article that Albert Muller wrote at World Opinions, which is part of World Magazine. And he talks um, in the outset about the conference. So let's talk about uh, that, the unconditional conference that was held. It, Mueller describes it as the two-day premiere event, especially designed for parents of LGBTQ children and ministry leaders, where you're going to be equipped, refreshed, inspired, as you hear leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind, this promises. And one statement stands out in the description, Mueller says, no matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, to reflect, and learn as we approach a topic from a quieter middle space. Now, the advertising here from this conference, it indicates the design, it, the design of the conference is designed as a platform for normalizing the LGBTQ revolution in the church, which we're going to talk about a little later. But while claiming that this conference represents the quieter middle space, in truth, as Mueller says, there is no quieter uh, middle space on these issues. And it's no longer plausible to claim that such a middle space exists. Now, we, we talked about a little bit about Justin Lee and Brian Nitzel. And both of these men, as I mentioned, are in same-sex relationship. Lee is known as a platform speaker who argues for the legitimacy of monogamous same-sex relationships, meaning that it's okay in, that, in this man's view for men to marry another man. Nitzel presents seminars on restoring LGBTQ plus faith, just to be clear. This is not the biblical faith, and this is not the biblical sexual ethic. Another major speaker is David Gushy, who we'll talk about a little bit later as well. He's a prominent intellectual who's been honest about his own change of mind on the moral status of the LGBTQ plus behaviors and relationships. And Mueller describes it this way in the definitive edition of his book, Changing Our Minds, subtitled A Landmark Call for Inclusion of LGBTQ Christians. He traces his own pilgrimage to eager LGBTQ plus advocacy. In the book, Gushy states that he will grant the historical claim that the church has believed the same sex acts and relationships are always wrong. But the book traces his change over time to a position in which he clearly asserts that the Christian church has been historically wrong on the issue. In his book and other presentation, Gussie is clear about his position, his reasoning, his reading of the Bible, and his conclusions. Now, Mueller says that he appreciates Gushy's clarity in which he makes his argument, even his confidence in, in doing that. But what Mueller says is, we are facing a fundamental difference about convictions. As Gushy writes, I am instead asking whether, in his book, he says this, 
I am instead asking whether devout gay and lesbian Christians might be able to participate in the covenantal marital sexual ethical standard one person for life, faithful and exclusive, in a loving, non-exploitative, non-coercive, reciprocal relationship that is the highest expression of Christian sexual ethics, which in fact a good good number are already doing. I can't find a compelling reason not to believe that. Now, Muller again references this quiet, this middle space, and how it's not that. And, and speaking about the conference, the unconditional conference, Muller says, it is structured as what most evangelicals would quickly recognize as a departure from historical, normative, biblical Christianity. Now, we, I mentioned Andy Stanley is one of the most influential pastors in the United States. He's been moving this way for a long time. His ministry has been clouded by confusion and the deliberate avoidance of clarity. In 2018, he called for the church to be unhitched from the Old Testament, arguing that the Old Testament should not be understood as a go-to resource regarding any behavior in the church. Well, let's be honest. When you do, when you make statements like that, you do away with Leviticus eighteen twenty-two. You shall not lie with a, a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. But in truth, there goes the entire Old Testament. In two thousand twelve, uh, Stanley seemed to argue that adultery is a sin, but told of two men in a relationship with no suggestion of the same-sex coupling was forbidden in the Bible. And when the message became controversial, Stanley did not clarify his comments at all. In another message, Stanley dismissed biblical texts against homosexual behavior as clobber verses and said, if your, verse, if your theology gets in the way of ministry, like if there's somebody you can't minister because of your theology, you have the wrong theology. Now, um, uh, D Dr. Uh, Denny Burke, of, uh, he's a pastor, he's a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and also uh, the president, as I mentioned, of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He responds to this. Now, Andy, Andy has also said a few things as well. And he says, Stanley does, that Mueller is, not, is actually accusing me of departing from his version of biblical Christianity. And so Stanley wants to go on record and say, I've never subscribed to his version of biblical Christianity to begin with, and so I'm not leaving anything. And if he, he were here, he would say, well, Andy, I've never subscribed to your version of biblical Christianity. And Stanley says, that's okay. We can agree to disagree. But this is so extraordinarily misleading. In my opinion, just my opinion, his version of biblical Christianity is the problem. His version, this version of biblical Christianity is why people are leaving unnecessarily. It's the version that caused people to resist the Christian faith because they can't find Jesus in the midst of all the other stuff and all the other theology and all the other complexities that gets bobbed down by the message. Bottom line, that version of Christianity draws lines. And Jesus drew circles. He drew circles so large and included so many in his circle that it consistently met uh, made religious leaders nervous. Now, we need to understand what uh, Stanley is doing. He's saying that Christianity is all-inclusive. It's it's all about, you know, accepting people, Jesus drew lines. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about that. Uh, if you read the Gospels, it, it's, it's so clear. Uh, people went out from Jesus because Jesus gave hard words. Jesus did what's known as dividing the audience. He had a large crowd. He divided the audience because he called them to make a commitment, not just a partial commitment, but an all-out commitment. Uh, this type of Christianity that Stanley is talking about is what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was talking about in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's cheap grace. It's cheapening the grace of God. It's saying, you know what? Um, well, we can just agree to disagree about even what Christianity is. But here's the thing. Christianity is not a subjective thing. It, it's not based on a subjective standard, Stanley. It's, it's based on the objective standard of the word of God. Now, Burke rightly comments that Stanley frames the message of this language as merely a misunderstanding and that critics like Mueller just don't get it. Stanley says that North Point uh, didn't host a Bible or theology conference. It's a pastoral conference designed to restore the relationship of parents to their gay kids. And he contends that North Point has not changed its teaching on sexuality. He says that North Point continues to teach that biblical marriage is a union of one man and one woman, and that, and that sex outside of marriage is not get, 
is not God's best. Burke says, well, that sounds pretty Christian, right? Actually, it's not, as Burke says. Now, what Stanley does, he follows that, that statement by saying that some gay Christians find this teaching hard to follow. He says that gay people at North Point know what the Bible teaches about marriage, but they choose to enter gay relationships anyway because they don't want to spend their lives alone. They don't want to live without love and a family, and so they marry a same-sex partner, and then they just add that to following Jesus. Stanley says that North Point doesn't just draw lines to keep people out. Rather, they draw circles of inclusion so that they can remain at North Point as mayor uh, as married couples. Stanley says, gay Christians choose a sex, same-sex marriage, not because they're convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible we do. They choose to marry for the same reason many of us do, love, companionship, and family. And at the end of the day, as was a case for all of us, and this is an important thing I want you to hear me say, it's their decision. Our, our decision is to decide how we respond to their decision. Our decision as a group of local churches is how are we going to respond to their decisions? And we decided 28 years ago, we draw circles. We don't draw lines. We draw big circles. If someone desires to follow Jesus, regardless of their starting point, regardless of their past, regardless of their current circumstances, our message is come and see and come sit with me. And this is not new. This is who we are. This is who we always have been. And this is why I love our church, and this is why I'm so extraordinarily proud of you, Stanley says. We aren't condoning sins, we're restoring relationships, and we're literally saving lives. Now, Stanley argues, speaking about the two conference speakers, they're faithful followers of Christ, even though they both reject what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality. So Stanley says, this is why Justin and Brian were invited, the two married gay men at the center of all the controversy. And I'm sure you've read about that. And here's the thing about Brian and Justin, their stories and their journey of growing up in the church and maintaining their faith in Christ and their commitment to follow Christ all through the high school and college and singles all the time they were married. Their story is so powerful for parents of gay kids, especially because that's a story gay parents and gay kids need to hear. Now, um, we can say so, so much about this, but we, we have really said a lot. But you know what? It's honestly not even just Andy Stanley here that's that's the issue. But there there's so many people that have said so many things about this topic. Rob Rob Bell responded to a question regarding same-sex marriage, and Bell said, I am for marriage. I am for fidelity. I'm for love, whether for a man, and I think the ship has sailed, and I think the church needs, I think this is the world we're living in, and we need to affirm people wherever they are, meaning just do whatever you want. That's what Stanley is arguing for. Just just do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Live however you want to live, but but then if, you, if you're going to argue that, Rob Bell and Andy Stanley, then you can't argue for the New Testament sexual ethics, Stanley, as you say you are. You can't argue for the biblical sexual ethic. You can't say that you're for one man and one woman to be married when you're telling a, a gay couple, it's okay, it's okay, just just do whatever you want and, and come and speak to my people, uh, the people in my church about this. Now, another voice advocating for change on the same-sex marriage in the church is William Kent, a member of the United Methodist Committee to Study Homosexuality. And at the end of the study, he says, the scriptural texts in the Old and the New Testament condemning homosexual practice are neither inspired by God nor are they of enduring value. That, that says a lot there. But there's even more. Gary David Comstock, the Protestant chaplain at Westland University, says, not to recognize, critique, and condemn Paul's equation of godliness with homosexuality is dangerous. To remain within our respective Christian traditions and not challenge those passages that degrade and destroy us is to contribute to our own oppression. Those passages will be brought up and used against us again and again and again until Christians demand their removal from the biblical canyon, or at the very least formally discredit their authority to prescribe behavior. Luke Timothy Johnson, Robert W. Woodruff, professor of New Testament and Christian origins at the Chandler School of Theology at Emory University, takes Gary one step further, suggesting that the Bible nowhere speaks positively or even neutrally about same-sex love. And then he says, I think it's important to state clearly that we do reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? 
We ex appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed too, which tells us that uh, that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. And by doing so, we explicitly reject as well the premise of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality, namely, that is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption, disobedient to God's created order. And you know what? This, this issue goes on and on and on. You know, we, we have seen this issue in our culture. It started in 2001 uh, in the Netherlands, which became the, the very first nation to legalize same-sex uh, marriages. We, we've seen in 2015 that the United States Supreme Court mandated that same-sex marriage be legal in all 50 states in the Obergefell versus Hodge decision. And, and on and on we, we can go. In, in 2000, uh, just on that point alone, on the Obergefell decision, we can go back to 2004 and see that only 31% of Americans favored same-sex marriage. And by 2019, support had grown to more than 60% of Americans. One in six Gen Z young adults identifies as LGBTQ, according to Gallup uh, data from 2020. And amongst Gen Z who identify as LGBTQ, 72% say they identify as a bisexual which means that almost 12% of all Gen Z adults identify as bisexual. About half of millennials, the next generation older, who identify as LGBTQ say they are uh, bisexual. Our, our young people are under assault in high school and college. In fact, in an article titled Christian Higher Ed Can't Win, that very same David P. Gushy, who at one time held to a traditional view of sexuality, that is between one man and one woman in marriage, for life under God, he argued that evangelicals cannot win this debate on Christian campuses. Instead, he argues that evangelicals must adapt to our culture's view of sexuality. Now, let's stop there. That view is known as cultural accommodation. That view is known to cave, meaning cultural accommodation means that you are caving to what the culture has to say about a given topic. You're, you're not standing on the Word of God and for what the Word of God says. Instead, we're, what we're seeing, as we've talked about already, what we're seeing is it's all about my story. It's all about my experience. Now, now what, what this does is it, there's, there's a couple of different words. There's a, there's a theology from above, which that is grounded in God's inspired inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and clear word. And there's a theology from below. And what a theology from a below does is it does exactly what we're seeing. It places my feelings, my story on the same level, on the same level, on the same train tracks, if you will, as the word of God. And that's what we're seeing with Andy Stanley, with Rob Bell, and all these other people, is that they are equating their experience at the same level as that of the Word of God. Rather than, as, as biblically faithful Christians would do, we ground our thinking and our lives and our ministries and our teaching and our doctrine in the Word of God, and then we say, this is my experience is informed by the Word of God, not my experience and my story are at the same level. That is That was what the problem is with theological liberalism. Um, and, and that's the problem today, is when you, when you ground your faith in a feeling, you're, you're not going to have an objective faith. And as Christians, we have an objective faith. That's what's at stake. That's what Albert Mueller is arguing. That's what Denny Burke is saying is so powerful because, uh, because we have an objective standard in the Word of God. And, and if we deviate from that, make no mistake about it, you have a subjective standard. You don't have biblical Christianity anymore. You have what Jay Gresham wrote about in uh, Christianity and liberalism in the 1920, 1920, over 100 years ago. He said that this religion, the religion of theological liberalism, is a different religion. That is what we're seeing. We are seeing a totally different religion. We are seeing not biblical Christianity at play at North Point. We're seeing another religion. We're seeing another religion. Now, uh, David Gushy continues stating that uh, LGBTQ students are unwilling to accept some straight guy declaring to them that they can't be both Christian and gay. They won't tolerate being second-class citizens on campus. And Gushy declares that students, whether Christian or not, arrive on campus having been exposed to tolerance, inclusion, and full acceptance of LGBTQ uh, students. 
uh, Erwin Lutzer is a former pastor of Moody Church. He says, no matter, uh, in response to this, comments from David Gushy, no matter what the school's doctrinal lifestyle statements are, the argument is, is that LGBTQ rights are a core value in our culture, and that schools cannot or will not withstand the pressure. The bottom line is this. Christian colleges and seminaries are going to have to compromise the historic uh, Christian understanding of sexuality and gender or be hopelessly left behind. They will lose their voice and credibility. They'll be left on the wrong side of history, he says. And then and then he says the next logical step is for schools to hire sympathetic staff who want to stand up for the rights of the same sex and transgender students. But that's not going to be enough. Once the school's administration has started down this road, they're going to go all the way. And that's that's exactly the problem. And that's what we're seeing. And that's why in our current cultural climate, whether you're a parent, you're a pastor, a university president, a, a seminary professor, or a lay person, we must arm ourselves with the Word of God. We must refuse to compromise with the culture. We must refuse uh, like the church, uh, to be like the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, 1 through 6, and embrace a pagan spirituality. You know, this is so important to understand, and, and, I, and I honestly could say so much about it, but the main thing is to say is that Scripture in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 um, is very clear that, that God uh, first took man from dust and breathed life to him, and then he saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And he took a rib from Adam and made Eve. He made man first, and then he made Eve to be a helpmate. Now, we need to ask the question in light of what we've been talking about here today. Does the authority of Scripture matter on issues related to biblical sexuality and gender roles? And you're going to get a dozen different answers to that question in, the, in various quarters of contemporary evangelicalism. And what it boils down to, whether we believe the authority of the Bible matters um, or whether it's, it's not clear. Either the Bible's teaching is clear in Genesis 1 through 2 and Ephesians 5 and other places about the place of a man and the role of a wife in the home and in the church, or it's not. Now, Dr. Owen Strand says, if the major issue of the 16th century was that of acceptance, how a man might be forgiven by God, and the major issue of the 20th century was that of authority where the Bible is inerrant, then the major issue, Owen says, of our time is that of anthropology, what it means to be human. And let's be clear, to the degree that the church stands on the Word of God, it's going to continue to proclaim the Word of God. And, and this is so important because the Bible is crystal clear that God made man for a woman and a woman for a man. And I mentioned Leviticus 18. It, there the Lord give, gave laws related to sexual practice, and these specific laws teach the general prohibition uh, against adultery in Exodus 20.14. In fact, Leviticus 18.22 out, uh, outlaws all homosexuality. And when it says, you shall not lie with a, a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. So, the, you know, the, this whole conference, it's related to one question how should christians relate to homosexuals you know we have seen many many different answers not only from stanley but from uh, lots of other people and it's an important question frank turek comments that marriage is a social institution that provides society with the very foundation of civilization the procreating family unit marriage in scripture is defined as one man and one woman joined together in covenant relationship under god for all of life to love one another as christ loved the church and, and so this question, how should Christians relate to homosexuality, is really, really important. But what happens next is we're seeing when teaching and defending marriage between one man and one woman is the accusation by the opposite side, non-Christians and even some biblically illiterate Christians, of being judgmental. Now, it, it might be true that some Christians are guilty of judging someone in, engaging in homosexuality, but the Bible is still crystal clear. And the Bible stands in judgment of, of men, not men in judgment of the Scripture. Answering that particular uh, objection that we're talking about is none other than Dr. Peter Jones of the Truth Exchange. What he says, it has become common to encourage Christians to show 100% acceptance and 0% judgment, especially when it comes to the issue of homosexuality. Such acceptance is seen only as the only way to demonstrate God's love. Acceptance of other people is essential. 
for no man can judge another. But speaking of God's love without explaining who God is, depersonal is both God and love. There is no such thing as love in general. It must be directed to a person and used to build up others and bring them to Jesus Christ in true human maturity. Each person's uh, responsibility as a created human being is 100% acceptance of who God is. Have we exchanged that God revealed in Scripture for a sentimental notion of a non-judgmental ho-ho Santa Claus or a spiritual force um, which we're sure the culture will embrace? And so you can see Romans 1 has so much to say about this. It's a very controversial passage, but it's becoming the go-to passage for those who seek to qualify the truth of Scripture for their own means. In fact, one website describes that passage in Romans 1.26 this way. Romans 1 has nothing to do with homosexuality because gay and lesbians are never mentioned. And yet Dr. Tom Schreiner uh, corrects this when he says, idolatry is unnatural in this sense that it is contradictory to God's intention for human beings. To worship corruptible animals and human beings instead of the incorruptible God is to turn the created order upside down. Human beings were intended to have sexual relations with those of the opposite sex. And just as idolatry is a violation and a perversion of what God intends, so too homosexual relations are contrary to what God planned when he created men and women. And, and Romans 1, uh, 1, 18 through 32, it makes a clear distinction between the creator and the creature when Paul focuses on God and his invisible attributes in Romans 1, 20. And so we need to understand that what, what Paul is talking about here when he talks about this in Romans 1, 26 through 27, that Romans 1 does talk about homosexuality and homosexual behavior in the eyes of God is a sin. And whether you believe that or reject it is of up, a matter of utmost importance and urgency, especially in light of this conversation. Paul has this to say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, when the God who created man in his image and likeness speaks, a man or a woman must heed the word of God. To not heed what God has declared is to reject him as he's been revealed in the word. And in 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the good news. God, as a creator, has the right to insist and even demand what he wills of his creation. He can take our way our lives or he can sustain them. That's his right. Yet God, in his mercy, continues to reach out uh, to man through the finished and sufficient work of Christ. In fact, Paul, before he even gives the creator creature distinction, we need to remember, he gives the gospel message of the righteousness found in Christ alone in Romans 1, 16 through 17. The, the righteousness of God refers here to God satisfying his justice by putting the penalty of human sin fully on Christ. It is revealed, Paul means, to those who confess faith in Christ so that they might live faithfully before his face. And while the homosexuality uh, reject, community rejects the clear teaching of Romans 1, God still reaches out to them, calling them to turn from their idolatry to himself through the person and work of Christ, who promises to credit sinners with his righteousness if they trust in him alone. Instead of being called more, out more than once, homosexuality is not the worst sin. Paul makes it clear that all have sinned, which means that everyone is in need of the righteousness of God. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can save, and he does so through his person and through his work. Now, we need to understand that everybody is involved in theology. R.C. Sproul once said that everyone is a theologian. The question is whether you're a good theologian or a bad one. And the person who identifies as LGBTQ is saying they have conviction, they have ideas about how they want to function in life and where they want to find their meaning, their identity, their value, their worth. And so those who identify as LGBTQ want to live from this worldview. They want to be accepted about that. Uh, like this. They, to be clear, what the LGBTQ community wants is to be accepted as who they are without reservation, without qualification. Or to put it another way for you, they want to be accepted as they are and to believe as they want. 
Now, everybody has a set of doctrines in which they adhere, and deeply embedded into every person is an innate desire for the truth, of which, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, that was set on their hearts by God. And when we consider what identity, what meaning, what value and worth are from a biblical worldview, we can see the problems with interpreting the Bible through the lens of the world, as we're seeing with Andy Stanley and many others from Scripture. I can tell you growing up in Seattle, I'm not unsympathetic to this conversation. I, over the years, I've had many conversations growing up in Seattle uh, with people that are, are, are identify as LGBTQ. And, and what we go back to is I would ask them, what does God say about you? And, and, and we go back to Genesis 1. We look at Genesis 1. We look at Genesis 2 where God created men and women to be equal in dignity and value, but also assigned to them different roles and function. And behind, we need to understand the gay Christian movement are wrong convictions about the Bible, as well as many misinterpretations of it. Uh, the gay Christian movement says it doesn't support the viewpoint that Scripture teaches, the wrongness of a man being with a man and or a woman being with a woman sexually. And, and what we have to understand, even at a most fundamental level, is that God himself says that he created man from the dust and then created Eve from Adam's rib in Genesis 2.22. And so to justify the position, the gay Christian movement has to disregard Genesis 1-2 through 2, along with every other passage that contradicts its viewpoint. Christian or gay, a gay Christian and celibate. The problem is, is that it makes the Bible say what you want to say rather than what it says. It reinterprets the Bible to reflect our own opinion, thereby freeing us to uh, justify that opinion that we're freed from the supposed shackles of biblical authority. Now, in our society, biblically faithful Christians are facing an epidemic of mass proportion and challenges to biblical sexuality in general on every front. And to be sure, we should not be silent on these issues. But let's make no mistake about it. The issue of gay Christianity or being gay but celibate and a Christian is a massive one, and there's everything at stake. We need to understand, is Jesus Lord overall, including my sexual organs, my sexual desires, my sexual feelings? Is Jesus Lord overall our morality, our life and decisions? And the answer that Scripture gives is a resounding yes. And this is grounded, we need to understand, in the person and work of Christ. You know, if I walk up to a Mormon and I ask him if he's a Mormon or a Christian, they're going to say to me, I'm, he's a Christian, a Mormon Christian. The Mormon identifies as a Mormon, but they're also a Christian. And a similar mindset is seen in those who are LGBTQ. They're going to tell you that they're gay and they're Christian. And the problem with that viewpoint is that anything that hyphenates the term Christian creates an idol out of the other thing. The only identity the Bible recognizes as, 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 a, as, a, as a Christian is one who has been legally forgiven of all their sins by the blood of Christ and whose sin is no longer remembered before the Lord. We are seeing an entire movement of people who say that Jesus and Paul support get the gay Christian idea because they were celibate and therefore biblically faithful Christians must believe that one can be gay and Christian as long as they are choosing to find identity, meaning, value, and worth in the thought or action more so than God. And at the root of the gay Christian idea is a mindset that one would identify as gay first and then Christian rather than simply Christian. And these are significant differences between the worldview of the Christian from the Word of God and that of a gay Christian. The first one comes to the Bible and sees it as a very Word of God. The other casts doubt on the Scripture to support their position. And when we do this, we force an interpretation or meaning on Scripture that was never intended. We need to be clear about this. Jesus and Paul were never gay. They did not tell people to go against the teaching of the Old Testament all because of one man's opinion. Instead, Jesus expounded upon the Old Testament and viewed it as authority by upholding the clear teaching of Romans 1, which builds itself upon the foundation of Genesis 1-2. through 2, The Bible stands against the gay Christian movement. The only way to accept gay Christianity is completely to reject Romans 1 and therefore Genesis 1 and 2 and other passages. Worldviews matter because people matter. Behind the, those worldviews are convictions. Behind those convictions are choices. And behind the choices we make is the identity that we align with. And so those who hold to the gay Christian view, they teach a version of doctrine, but it's not sound biblical doctrine. It's not biblical Christianity, no matter what you want it to be, uh, Annie Stanley, it's not. Their perspective cannot nourish your soul. It cannot help you to grow in the grace of God because their view leads people away from the word of God and thus away from the God of the scripture. And rather than obedience, the gay Christian perspective leads men and women 
created in the image and likeness of God and rebelling against the Lord himself. In Christ, every person can have a new identity, but only when the Lord sovereignly removes their heart of stone and replaces it with a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 and uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 tell us this. And that is where the Christian's true identity lies, not in opinion, but in a person who is fully revealed in the word of God. It's not only a wrong hermeneutic being used in the gay Christian movement, it's an erroneous view of the person the Bible centers on, Jesus Christ. That leads to all sorts of errors, including the wrong Jesus, the one of our popular culture, instead of to the real Jesus, who is fully revealed in the Word of God. And it's not unloving to point out the wrong biblical interpretation in the gay Christian movement. True Bible-believing Christians tell people that they are wrong in their interpretation of Scripture, not because they get some enjoyment out of it, but out of love. If Christians get enjoyment out of telling people that they're an heir, they don't understand that they can and too need help. Instead, Christians point out the error they do to highlight the truth of God's word. In fact, Christians make the arguments that they do from Scripture to say a soul is at stake and eternity is on the line. That is not unloving, and non-Christians should expect even demand Christians to make that argument to engage passionately so that souls may be won for the sake of Christ. And sadly, many Christians don't make that argument because they've chosen to live a worldly life instead of a godly life in Christ. As Christians, we must stand on the full authority of the Word of God, and we must proclaim the authority of Jesus over everything, including our sexuality. And if we fail in that test, we concede not only the argument, but the gay Christian movement will continue to make advances, and the gay Christian movement will continue to make advances. And what we need to do today is, Christians, as we wrap up this episode, is we need to stand wholly on the Word of God, as we've been talking about. We need to stop having such a fear of man and begin to fear God. Because as Proverbs says, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. And to know God's wisdom is, it's only possible because we're in God's word. That's why on this show, we're going to continue to come back to and, and help you to learn to reading and studying and meditating and memorizing the Bible and rightly handling the word of God. Because if you can rightly handle the word of God, you can be able yourself you can be equipped to respond to these false teachers. And, and let's be clear, we need to stand up. We need to not have the fear of man. We need to fear God. This is why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in love. And even in 2 Timothy 2.24 and 25, we're to correct opponents with gentleness. And, and the goal here, by the way, in, in doing this kind of episode or the other episodes that, are, that will follow um, as we talk about the New Apostolic Reformation or we talk about New Age or we, we talk about topics happening in our culture from a biblical worldview and, and so much more, the goal here is to help you. It's to equip you not only to know what's out there, what's being taught, uh, but, but to learn how to be able to navigate these challenges and these topics so that you will not cave, you will not compromise. And here's the thing. This isn't a personal attack on Andy Stanley or anybody else mentioned in this episode. It's, it's to say, look, these things are happening out there. That's why we didn't just talk about Andy Stanley and how he wants to draw circles around everything, which, by the way, Jesus never drew circles. Uh, Jesus gave hard message. When, when you see in the Gospels, by the way, when Jesus gave a message, a tough message, what you see is people left. Jesus divided, as I said. He divided the audience straight down the middle between because he knew the heart of man, and he knew what was in them. He knew if they really belonged to him or whether they were just half-hearted disciples. They were just in it to be part of the crowd. Uh, those who desire to follow Christ do so in repentance and faith in the name of Christ. That's how we come in through the door of salvation. We come in the door through repentance and faith in Christ alone. That's what's so tragic about this matter with uh, this conference, Unconditioned Conference. Is it because of a sense of message that, you know what, the biblical sexual ethic doesn't matter, and yet he says that he, Andy says that he believes it, and the other people do as well. But here's the problem. When you advocate the view that we're talking about, you don't believe it. 
That's the thing. You can say you believe it till you're blue in the face, and it sounds good. It it sounds good. It markets well. Well, you know what? I'm not really I'm not really for that view. I'm I'm for what the Bible says. But that is double speak. It is talking out of both ends of your mouth. And the Bible calls that being double-minded and being a hypocrite. That's that's what the issue is here. And it's not even just the first time, as I mentioned about Andy, and it's not even just the first time that some professing Christian has said this. It's over and over and over and over again. You see, when we want to accommodate to the culture, we're always going to compromise. My friends, I do not want you to compromise on the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. I want to equip you to rightly handle the word of God so that you can rightly uh, yourself handle scripture and you can respond to these challenges out there, not only in the church, but also outside of the church. Every single Christian, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, is to be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that they have and to do it, uh, Peter says, with gentleness and respect. And remember, we must remember that in Galatians 5.22, one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. Those things that the Spirit is producing in our lives through the ministry, through the means of grace in our lives. And this is so important because you as a Christian, you don't need a compromise. You don't need a cave to what the world says. No, what you need to do is you need to stand on the Word of God. And as you do stand on the Word of God, guess what? You're going to call people to repent and believe and put their hope and trust in Christ alone. And that is a beautiful thing. Uh, Jesus talks about, and the Bible talks about the, uh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring people good news. This is a good thing. The, the message of the gospel is good news to a perishing world. And yet Paul says it's foolishness to the world. What does that mean? It means that to the unregenerate mind, to the unsaved mind, they find the gospel to be so repulsive and so um, t a turnoff because what they would rather have is they would rather have the, the pleasures of the flesh, the, the desire of the eyes, and, and what the world offers them. And this is every unsaved person. And what's even more tragic, though, is Andy Stanley claims to be a pastor, but he is not qualified to be in pastoral ministry. One of the qualifications to be a pastor is to be able to teach and to rightly handle the Word of God. That was a command, by the way, in 2 Timothy 2.15. And Andy Stanley, again and again and again, has proven that whether it's on unhitching, uh, he wants to unhitch us from the Old Testament, which he is doing once again. Um, actually, he's unhitching us from the whole Bible. But now he's He's saying one thing on this matter of sexual, biblical sexuality between one man and one woman, and yet he can have a, a, a married gay couple come and speak to professing Christians about how they should interact. No, that couple has nothing to say to a Christian. They have nothing biblical to say. They do not model the truth. They are not an example of the truth. They're not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And what Andy Stanley is doing is he's normalizing that behavior in the church even further through his platform and through this conference. That is why it's so dangerous. The Bible has something to say. It has something to say not only to the person that's in, enslaved to homosexuality or transgenderism or pornography or polygamy, all sexual sin of all kind, that what they need is Christ. They need Christ. They need to be saved by Christ, and Christ saves. That's Paul's point as we considered from Romans 1. In Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God. I realize that this message is not popular today. Uh, we live in a day in which what people want is what they want. They want their pleasure, and they want it now. They, they, we can drive through McDonald's or Burger King or Carl's Jr. or Hardee's or you know your favorite fast food joint, wherever you live. And you can get your latest fix. You can get your food. You can even order, you know, your groceries. Your gro groceries now can be delivered 
uh, to your house. I mean, if you live in the United States, you can do that depending on where you live. And, and in some parts of the world, I know that you can do that in, in, in first world countries. But, but here's the thing. That is also a great danger because if we take that view oh, well, I can drive through McDonald's and I can drive through and get my coffee and, and on and on and on. If we take this view and we bring it over into you know, and approach our Christian life this way as quick and easy and you know, not, not, what we're going to do is we're always going to cave. We're always going to compromise. We needed to take a long view towards our Christian life. We were saved. We walked through the door. The Lord opened our eyes by the sovereign grace of God. Praise the Lord. We were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But, but then, you know what? Calvin says that the Christian life is, is not just repentance at the start. The Christian life is one of repentance. What he means is following Luther in his not, at the very first point in Luther's 95 Thesis, which he, he, he you know, uh, put on that door, uh, nailed to the door at Wittenberg, he talked about how the Christian life is one of repentance. And this over and against, especially we're in the middle of Reformation Month, by the way. And this is so important because you know what, what Luther, what Calvin wanted to do is they wanted to not reinvent the gospel. They wanted to, they wanted to help people understand what scripture and what the church taught about the gospel itself. And you know what? That's what we need today. We need to understand that we're not only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to be clear, but that because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Paul tells us in Romans 6.11 to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That's, that's who we are. That's our identity in Christ, as, as we were talking about earlier. And it's because of that identity that we speak out against sexual sin. Because what sexual sin does is it gives us a different identity. It, it, it is idolatry. The, the pagan spirituality at root is, is not grounded in our identity with Christ. Who Christ has made us to be is to be his. In union with Christ, we are his and he is ours for the purpose of enjoying him in a daily walking out in obedience because of the grace of God through the help of the Holy Spirit to be sure, we, where we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, we fight our remaining and dwelling sin until the day that we die by putting it to death and by remembering and rehearsing the gospel to ourselves from the word of God. That's why we're continuing to grow. That's what I mean. We have to take a long perspective about these things. And so we need to call those stuck and enslaved in sexual sin to repentance, whether that's homosexuality, whether that's transgenderism, whether that's polygamy, whether, whether, they're co whether a man and a woman are cohabitating, and on and on. We need to be clear about biblical repentance, that it, it's not just sorrow for sin. It's turning away from our sin and to Jesus Christ. It's not just sorrow for sin. It's, there's a change of life. There's a change in direction. There's a change in life. And this is what Jesus called for. It's what the apostles called for. It's what the church has called for because Jesus is Lord over every square inch as Abraham Kuyper. There's not one square inch, Kuyper said, where Christ doesn't say mine, mine, mine. That's, that's how absolute the lordship of Christ is. And that's why talking about sexual sin comes at a great cost today. Because what people want is my pleasure. They want, it, they want it now, and they want it right away. But what Christ offers is something so much greater. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, what God offers is pleasures forevermore. Not pleasures that are temporal, not pleasures that are fleeting, not pleasures that are, are instantaneous in the moment. He offers something so much more, so much richer, so much greater. He offers, as, as Nehemiah says, he offers joy ever, everlasting. In, in Lamentations 3, it says that the, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And this is it's new every morning, that the joy of the Lord is new every morning. And this is what the Bible offers us in Christ. Christ offers us true, genuine 
everlasting joy. In fact, Jesus says this in, in John 7, right? He offers us living water. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You've been indwelt by the Spirit at the moment of conversion. You've been sealed by the Spirit at the moment of your conversion. You've been empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit is at work in your life. He is convicting you. He is pointing you to Christ from the Word. And we all need this. We all need this reminder. We all need this encouragement because we can forget. We can become callous. We can think, you know what? As, as I look out at the culture, it doesn't matter if I speak up. I don't, I don't have a sizable platform. I can't make a difference. But guess what? You can. You can make a difference uh, if you're a homeschool mom by training your kids in sing mom in the 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 ways of the lord in the word uh, fathers you can make a difference by doing the same as your as your wife by training your children if you have them in in the grace of god men you can do this if you're a married man you can do this by by leading your your wife if, if uh, or, or children if you have them in the word and family worship a, a simple time of opening the word reading it for a few minutes and then giving a few observations, leading in prayer, and singing a song. It doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, you can do this. And taking your family uh, to, to church every Sunday where you're going to sit under a biblically qualified male pastor and enjoy a rich exposition of the Word of God verse by verse and line by line uh, and be pointed to Christ and fellowshipping with God's people. This is so, so important today. This is how we're going to be able to stand. We're going to be, that's how we're going to be able to stand. That's how we're going to be able to be equipped to, to speak out about these matters. That's where you're going to learn to rightly handle and interpret the word of God so that as you're reading, as you're studying, as you're meditating, as you're memorizing, you, you can rightly handle the word and not wrongly handle the word. And that's why, even why we're doing these episodes, why we're doing this podcast, that's why Contending for the Word exists. We exist to help you. Yes, to expose, as Ephesians 5.11 says, the works of darkness, but also to help you to contend for the faith. And that begins by understanding what the Bible says and what the Bible means and, and responding to those who teach contrary to the Bible. And it's not just to be clear. Andy Stanley that's wrong on this topic. It, it's a whole host of people. It's a whole people that have done what Jay Gresham Machen said over a hundred years ago. They have departed from biblical Christianity and they believe a different religion. They are teaching a different religion. That's what happens with when we abandon a biblical sexual ethic and, and sexuality because this, this view of biblical sexuality and biblical ethics, it, it begins with god god made god created god saw that it was good god made man this was not our idea this was god's idea and, and even further god didn't need to make us if that wasn't enough here's something for you god didn't need to make us he made us out of the the inner trinitarian love of the father the son and the holy spirit he made us out of his abundant joy uh, for his own glory and that's why Genesis 1, 26 and 28 tells us that he made us in his image and likeness. Not because he had to. God is sufficient in and of himself. He is, he is satisfied in himself. And yet out of his inner Trinitarian love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he made us in his image and likeness. That's an amazing fact. And it's also the ground upon which we stand because God made, God saw, God did all of this for his own joy and for his own good. And he made this world so that we could inhabit it and so that we, we could be useful to him, servants of, of his glory and of his grace, bringing the glad tidings of good news and Christ alone to a watching world. That's the message that we need to proclaim, not just to the person that is struggling with sexual sin, but to every single sinner. See, we often say, oh, well, people think, oh, well, Christian, oh my gosh, they're doing another show on, uh, there's another sermon, there's another podcast on sexual, so they're just browbeating. But let's be clear about something. There's something far greater than just sexual sin at play here. It's that because of Adam, Adam's disobedience, we are sinners by nature and by choice. 
And what we need is the rescue. We need the redemption. We need the reconciliation that only Christ can offer to sinners. In fact, one last thought. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We were all once lost. We were all once, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet Paul says there that God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In Romans 5, Christ, uh, Paul says that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and I. And what he did was he justified us. He declares us at the moment of our conversion. Uh, where we where we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. He declares us not guilty. He declares us his friends. He declares us that we are indwelt by the Spirit. We are sealed by the Spirit. We are his and he is ours. This is the beauty of our union with Christ. This is the beauty that we have now to fellowship with Christ, to commune with Christ, to grow in our reading and our studying and our meditating and our memorizing and even our enjoyment of one another in our local churches. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this week's episode of Contending for the Word. I hope that it's been helpful. I hope that it's been encouraging. I hope that it will have equipped you. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contending for the Word. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, and follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, or X. We appreciate your support.